Romans 15, we are given this assurance, that the nature of God's word stems from the very nature of God himself. Our God is the God of all comfort. Therefore, his word gives us comfort that we might endure in hope as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. No wonder then that God calls us to pay careful attention to his word because there is comfort in close reading.
We don't get to see that in Mark's Gospel. He just ends with the last being first and the first last. As we come to a passage like this as well, we can unwittingly, or perhaps very wittingly, bring our theological um, preferences, our pre-belief in certain things to the passage that can make it hard for us to hear the passage. Throughout church history, there has been a debate that has gone on and is still not resolved, and no, we're not going to really talk about it much today, about rewards in the kingdom of heaven. Are some Christians given more in eternity than others because of how they lived in this life? Some Christians believe very strongly in that, almost as strongly as other Christians don't believe in it. But I don't think this passage is talking about that. As we come to this passage, I think we need to hear three things. And the first is that God shows no favouritism in salvation. God shows no favouritism in salvation. And secondly, he shows no favouritism within the kingdom. No favouritism entering the kingdom, and no favouritism in the kingdom. And that therefore, thirdly, we ought to be content in him. But my gosh, what a great gift he's given us to be content with. Turn with me then to the end of chapter 19 with the question that's raised about this uh, rich person, this young ruler. Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 23 and he says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easy for, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? We didn't touch on it so much last week, but as we uh, delve into our passage, it's important that we have the context in our minds and understanding. You see, there's a certain pattern, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy and in what flows from the book of Deuteronomy, where there is a truth that God will bless those who are within his covenant and obedient to his covenant. He will bless you in the fields. He will bless you in the house. He will bless you in the family. He'll bless you when you come in and when you go out. He'll bless your nation's dealings with other nations. He'll bless you. But alternatively, for those who disobey the covenant, there is curse, blight, drought, mildew, disease, and judgment. There's a certain reality then that as people look at the promises of the Old Testament, that one might think, that those who are obedient to God, in right relationship with God, might expect to be blessed in this life, physically, with riches, with good things. And yet Jesus turns around and says it's hard. It's only with difficulty that a rich person enters the kingdom of heaven. You can imagine, metaphorically of course, the disciples' minds exploding their worldview shattered. Being rich doesn't cause you to enter the kingdom. It isn't your ticket in. You don't pay your way in. It's not like you're more privileged and so therefore God gives you a free pass. No, it's a sign that you are in the kingdom, isn't it? And yet Jesus says, no, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Their minds explode, their worldview shattered, and they say, well... If that's not a sign of being in the kingdom, then who can be saved? If this rich young ruler is not in the kingdom, then who is saved? 
And Jesus points to the message that we hold so dearly and cherish. That what is impossible for us is possible with God. In other words, we are saved by God's grace, by his gift. He does what we cannot do. And we rejoice in that, don't we? Entry into the kingdom. None of you can see it, but someone's just raised their hands and cheering at the back there. Thank you, Marianne. Um, and uh, who doesn't want that? And it's right to respond like that, isn't it? To not take it as humdrum every day, oh, you have a message of grace, you have a Christian to have But day by day, we rejoice and we give thanks that it's not up to us. It's not by merit, but purely God's act of kindness. But it still leaves a question. Well, what about riches then? What does entry to the kingdom mean for us in terms of blessing and good gifts from God? If Jesus has just exploded their worldview of uh, the rich in this life, it's not a sign of them being in the kingdom, then well, what is it then? Peter says, well, we've left everything to follow you. What will we have? We've left everything behind. And they quite literally have. They left their nest, they left their boats, they left their livelihood, they left their family, and they followed him. Are you saying, Jesus, that in the kingdom of heaven there's no benefit for us to be in the kingdom? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world or in the renewal of things, the regeneration of things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, he's talking to the twelve disciples, twelve apostles, you will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Yes, there is a benefit. There is a great benefit to being in the kingdom of God submitting to his reign and rule. The many who are first will be last, and the last first. But what does that phrase mean? Is it talking about levels and orders? Or is it talking about the great leveling? Is it talking about those who are here and those who are here will be reversed? Or is it talking about everything being made level? I think it's the second, because of where Jesus goes on to explain in chapter 20. Entry into the kingdom, God shows no favoritism. All are saved by his grace. None are saved by their own efforts. But life in the kingdom as well, the blessing of the kingdom, shows no favoritism. And he uses this parable to explain it. You see there, he, uh, uh, the kingdom of heaven, verse 1, is like the master of a house who went out in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard, a very standard practice, and you still see it today uh, in certain cultures and even in Western cultures where people are looking particularly for workers on construction sites and things like that. Do you have work for us today? Uh, people picking in the fields or whatever, people will turn up to a place and they'll say, look, we only need five people today, but there are 12 of you, so the rest of you, sorry, but there'll be no work for you today, and they're left to go home. That kind of culture and way of operating still exists, and it's a very typical uh, way of operating. And so the master of the house comes out, he hires laborers for his vineyard. He agrees, verse 2, for a denarius a day and sends them into his vineyard. But here we begin to see a bit of a difference uh, happening because people don't keep going out to look for workers. And as the passage develops, we can't help but think that the master of the house 
is going out and hiring laborers for his field, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the people who are there. He's acting in grace and generosity. And so in the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, he goes out and sees people still hanging around, waiting to be hired, and no one's hired them, and so he brings them on. And he says, oh, whatever is right, I will give you. Whatever is fair, whatever I deem, I will give you. And even at the eleventh hour, five o'clock in the afternoon, only one hour to go before the end of the working day, the others have been working for eleven hours. These guys haven't been working for eleven hours, but even at the eleventh hour, still others are found standing. They said, no one's hired us. And he sends them into the vineyard too. When it comes to pay, he begins with the last and goes up to the first. But notice what he does. Those who have only worked one hour, he gives a denarius, the very thing that he agreed to pay those who were there at 6 a.m. in the morning. In fact, everybody throughout the day, whether they worked one hour, three, six, nine, or 12 hours, he gives them a denarius. How would you feel if you've been working in the field all day only to be paid the same amount with those who've worked only one hour? You'd be okay with it, wouldn't you, if they uh, got paid less than you? If they got paid proportionally? But to be paid the same amount, even though it's what was agreed at the beginning, The kingdom of heaven is like this. Because God chooses to act in grace. He chooses to act in generosity. He has the right. He's doing no wrong. It's not like he's ripping off the people that have worked all day. It's not like he's showing uh, uh, a bias against them. But he's choosing to lavish his riches from his house, his possessions, on those whom he chooses to lavish them. And can anyone begrudge God the right to do that? The justice of God to do that? He chooses to give to the last worker as he gives to the first. Verse 15, am I not allowed to choose to do with what, belong, with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Quite literally, do you see as evil what I do as good? God shows no favoritism when it comes to the kingdom of God. That is, we are saved by grace. And we exist in the reign and rule of God by grace, his generosity. And whatever might come to us in the benefits of the kingdom, it is by grace. And there is a universality about it. Think for a moment about what it is that you receive when you enter the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul says, you receive some spiritual blessing. He doesn't say that, does he? He says you receive every spiritual blessing. There is not one spiritual blessing that you miss out on from other Christians when you enter the kingdom of heaven. Forgiveness, redemption, Reconciliation, to know the will of God, adoption into his family, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, forgiveness, righteousness that comes from Christ, holiness, a spirit within us who teaches us to call God Father, 
access to his heavenly throne room that we might pray to him. The veil lifted from our eyes that we might see and understand the word. The promise of an age to come where we will dwell with God face to face. Will there be no more crying or sighing or pain or tears because the old order has passed away. There is a renewal, a regenesis, a new creation, and we will dwell with God forever. Which Christian misses out on any of that? None. Which Christian receives that? All of them. And what good news that is for everyone to receive that grace from God. Those who are first will be last, the last first. Everyone together will be in God's presence with him under his reign and rule. He shows no favoritism in salvation. It's impossible for man, but possible with God. What will we have? Asks Peter. Everything. But the rubber begins to hit the road in three different ways. Hang on, you might say. You told us to look at chapter 19 as the context, and we have. And he's just said there that the apostles will sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Surely that means there's difference in the new creation. Some will get more and some will get less. But the answer to that question is this. Where does it say that sitting on its throne judging the 12 tribes of Israel is greater than those who don't? It's a distinction, but is it a reward? We need to reconfigure what we see as reward versus responsibility. But I think it really gets home for us in a couple of different ways. But let me just dwell on this just for a moment more. Even if there are rewards in heaven, the best thing we can do is to stop thinking about them in a lot of ways. Because the moment you work for a reward, who are you working for? You're working for yourself. That's actually one of Martin Luther's great things about uh, discovering the righteousness that comes from God rather than from men. You might love people and pour out yourself, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't he? You might give your body and sacrifice to the flames and donate everything that you have to the poor, and it still might not be love. If you're doing it for your own salvation, if you're doing it for your own status with God, if you're doing it to get something from God, then it's no longer about God. It's about you. It's a form of self-love rather than love itself. And that is where Martin Luther takes us in the gospel. The freedom that comes, knowing that we are saved by grace and not by merit, then we're actually free to love truly. That is, to give ourselves to others, to sacrifice for their good. Not because it benefits us, but purely because it benefits them. Because we've already received all benefits from God's hand. What will we have? We'll have everything. And if there are degrees of glory in heaven, they pale in insignificance compared to the overwhelming glory that we all have. God himself. You could stop right there, couldn't you? What will you have in the new creation? Well, actually, you get to dwell within the presence of God himself, face to face and not be consumed by it. What more do we need? God shows no favoritism in salvation. He shows no favoritism in the kingdom, but he calls us to be content in him. 
Kevin raised for us at the beginning uh, that question. Would we begrudge someone coming late into the kingdom after a horrific life that is disturbing even just to mention? To stand shoulder to shoulder with those who are saintly in the kingdom. But that's God's grace and will and decision. If we catch ourselves from time to time thinking they don't belong in the kingdom, no, they don't. They don't deserve it. But then neither do we. If we catch ourselves thinking, I don't want to share the gospel with that person because they might be saved and I don't want them to be saved, then we are betraying the character that is not with God. But what happens when that perpetrator of evil is a perpetrator of evil against us? He committed adultery against me, and now he's in the kingdom? I was physically abused by that person, and now they've repented and believed. When it comes to real cases, this passage hits home in a very hard way, and we ought not pretend that it's easy but we ask God for grace to receive such a person with the same grace he has received us. But it hits home a third way, I think, for those who are already in the kingdom. Because it can become tempting at times, easy at times, and in some ways inevitable at times, for us to compare our race with the race of those around us. That person has a family, and I'm single. That family has children, and we were unable to. That family has children who believe, but ours have fallen away. I'm divorced, they're not. Why do I undergo sickness and pain and suffering, estrangement, difficulty financially, hard to tie down drops, struggling with addiction, but they don't. Is God treating me unfairly compared to them? Why can't I have a race that looks like theirs? It was brought home very clearly to us uh, about eight years ago. Uh, we were in England. I was not well. Uh, we had an incredibly rough time being there. Uh, in, look, it would take another half an hour to talk to you about the ways in which it was hard, so I won't. But we got a piece of news from back here in Sydney that kind of uh, kind of exacerbated everything and made apparent just how different our lives were compared to what we thought they would be under God's grace. And the person who shared the news, a dear friend of, uh, of ours, uh, she had called in the middle of the night over there so that we could hear it uh, from her rather than from someone else and uh, she shared the news and uh, to my great shame I said, you don't know what it's like uh, to be left behind as a Christian like this. And she said, excuse me. At that time, she dearly wanted to be married, but she wasn't. She was single. She wanted to have children. She still doesn't have children and never will have children. She lived day to day knowing that she was different from the so-called norm of other Christians. And it only took me half a second to realise I'd said it. It's half a second too late, really. Um, uh, and I apologise, and in her grace she forgave, but uh, it was that that was the catalyst for me to understand, well, actually, as I look around at my friends, 
We all have a different race. Why does that family seemingly have everything, but actually when you look below the surface, miscarriage after miscarriage, when you look below the surface, in and out of jobs, not by their own uh, laziness or anything like that, but just unable uh, to sustain a, a normal income. Or you look at that family and, well, her brother committed suicide. Or you look at that family and uh, her uh, father abused her. Or you look at that family and he committed adultery. Or you look at that family, she abandoned the marriage. Or everywhere we turn, people are running different races. Some have it easier. Some have it harder. But the grace is the same. And sometimes it may be uh, a cause for us to think, God, why have you given me this and not that? Because I don't want this, and I don't like this, and I see my Christian brothers and sisters not having this struggle that I have, and I wish I didn't have it, and God's grace is sufficient for us, as he tells the Apostle Paul. A man who had a thorn in his flesh that God refused to remove. My grace is sufficient for you. We all have a different race before God. It is our own race. And he is the one that will determine that race. But thankfully, we don't run it alone. What we may not have in this life, don't we gain a hundredfold in mothers, brothers, fathers, children, land, brothers, sisters? Uh, don't we receive that and in the world to come, eternal life? We run our own races, but we run it together and we support one another through it. But when temptation comes to begrudge, the salvation and grace of others, we forget God's grace to us. When we struggle with it, we turn to God and pray and say, please help me to have the grace that you have had to me. Sometimes in very painful circumstances. One of the great joys of being in Sydney Anglican churches is that we are kind of obsessed with seeking the glory of God, which is a great thing. But it's actually also one of our biggest weaknesses because we're so activist in our churches that we forget that God is actually sovereign over his own glory. God will glorify himself in us. And the way he chooses for us to be for his glory may very well not be the way that we want to glorify him. When we go through suffering, like Job, and at the end of it say, the Lord gives and takes away, the name of the Lord be praised. Isn't that to the glory of God? When the evil one comes and says, they're going to curse you if they go through this suffering, and God says, no, they won't. My grace is sufficient for them. And we endure, whether a day, a week, a month, a lifetime. And at the end, we give praise and honour and glory to God. Who would choose that for themselves? Would Job ever choose that experience for himself? In a lot of ways, he never even knew what was going on in his experience, and yet he gave glory to God. God will glorify himself in you and me, and not in the way that we plan, because he has a race for each one of us. Be obsessed with the glory of God, but be humble to accept that he will glorify himself in us according to his decision. It's interesting as you read through passages like this, different Bibles do different things, but uh, the Bible that I was using to prepare this, uh, there's no verbal parallel, there's no uh, kind of um, uh, literary allusion or anything like that, but in the footnotes for some other verses you might want to have a look at as you read Matthew 20, um, it points to Romans chapter 9. 
where God says, does not God have the right to make out of the same lump of clay things for different purposes? Who are we to talk back to God and say, why did you make me like this? Brothers and sisters, in the kingdom of heaven, the first will be last and the last first. That is, we enter by grace together. We experience the benefits of the kingdom of grace together. And it is not for us to begrudge whom God chooses to save, when he chooses to save them, or the particular plans and purposes in life which he chooses to have for us for his glory. But what we can be assured of is this, that when his glory is revealed on that day, all of this will fade. All of this will be seen as nothing as we realise that grace upon grace, the glory upon glory, the honour upon honour, the majesty upon majesty, the, the wonder of the blessing of God expressed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs>